It's something for nothing. The Rush Fancast. Jerry and Steve with you. Hey, Jerry, what's up? Not much, Steve. How are you doing today? I'm doing great. We've just great. discovered we have no agenda. We have no agenda. Our only agenda is loving Rush. That's true. Very true. We're not trying to convince anyone of anything <laughs> other than to love Rush. Exactly. You can find us on Twitter at RushFanCast. Instagram, we are the TheRushCast. And our email is therushcast at gmail.com. Email Jerry. Tell him what you think of the podcast. We appreciate all the emails we get. And we appreciate the bass intro done by our good pal Lex, as always. And before we get to your email, Jer, I've got a letter to read. You have an email to read? It's not an email. This is a letter from one of our listeners. His name is Derek. You can find him on Twitter at Silverhammer underscore 13. And... He personally handed me this letter. Okay. It's a letter letter, like something that you would get in the mail. It's a letter letter, and he reached out to us. Well, let me read you the letter. Okay. Okay. This Neil Peart poster comes from a modern drummer festival at Montclair State, New Jersey, September 15th, 1991. So along with the letter was a poster. Okay. Very nice poster. There was a stack of posters on the table by the auditorium door with all the vendors my high school friends and I were obsessed with Neil and Rush, so we kept taking a few at a time. By the end of the show, we had a sizable stack. We used them to decorate our lockers, bedrooms, as book covers, and hung in every apartment. They've been rolled up and kept in pristine condition for 29 years. On Neil's birthday, I thought, what's the most excellent thing I can do today? Oh. And since I have a few posters left, I thought to offer one as a giveaway to a fan of the podcast. Wow. So I reached out to Steve and Jerry. No way. So we're the most excellent thing he did that day? We are the most <laughs> excellent thing he did that day. Neil was an amazing man who made the most of each day and lived an incredible life with a sense of adventure. His drive, work ethic, and care for drumming, lyrics, and everything he did outside of Rush is a great inspiration, and he is dearly missed. Enjoy the poster, Derek. Wow. Yeah, and at the top of the letter is a, a copy of his ticket to this Modern Drummer Festival. Oh, wow. That's cool. I can see it. Yeah, so we're going to give away this poster, and we're going to give away the letter that's enclosed with the poster to a listener that is on our email list. Right, just like we did uh, with uh, that extra big, beautiful book of bass right. a while ago. So if you're not on the email list, email jerry at therushcast at gmail.com. The Rushcast. The Rushcast at gmail.com. <sighs> He'll put you on the list. Then we'll choose a winner. All right. Sounds like, sounds like a plan, Steve. Today's Monday. Why don't we choose the winner on Friday, and then we'll announce the winner next Monday. Fair? Me? Do I think it's fair? I think it's very fair, yes. And the cool thing about Derek is he is a handyman here in northern New Jersey. Okay. Which is why I was able to meet up with him, because I'm in northern New Jersey. So is he. And he's got Rush stickers all over his handyman van. Really? Yeah, it's cool. So if you need some handyman work done in northern New Jersey, I recommend you call Derek just to see the cool inside of his van. Is this like a company named after a Rush song? It is not. The Working Man? Silver Hammer Handyman. Mm, the Working Man would have been a good one. Silver Hammer is probably, you know, the Beatles song. Maxwell Silverhammer. There That's you go. Saying. That's it. Yeah, he told me that. His wife is a Beatles fan. There you go. There you go. All right, then. Thanks so much for the poster, Derek, and allowing us to give it away for you. We really appreciate it. 
So, Jared, do you have an email for us? Uh, I don't have an individual email, but I think we should talk about the emails that we got and the comments that we got about our interview with Martin Popoff. Oh, yes, <laughs> Martin. So I, I thought the interview went well, didn't you? Yeah, I thought it went great. I mean, Martin's terrific. Yeah. He has strong opinions. Yep. And his strong opinions are what caused the feedback from our listeners. Yeah, he rubbed a lot of people the wrong way. Well, when you say Getty, Alex, and Neil have bad taste in music, that's going to rub people the wrong way. Yeah. I, so we got a lot of emails that week, more than usual. And all of them were kind of critical of, of his view of those albums. Even if people didn't like those albums specifically, they thought he was still a little harsh when he talked about them. But I'm glad to say that no one blamed us. No, no. People were very nice to us. Well, also people said we shouldn't have Martin back, but I disagree with that. Mm -hmm. I think we absolutely have to have Martin back when he has his third book, Rush in the 90s, and we'll present these criticisms of his opinion to Martin. That should be interesting. Yeah, well, I don't think he's going to change his tune. I give him no. I, don't think I so give either. him credit for being honest and not saying things just to sell a book, right? Yeah, a lot of people, of course, you know, said that he's not a real Rush fan, which you know we've talked about that before too. Well, the thing is, there are a lot, a lot of Rush fans who love the '70s stuff. We've talked about this before. They love yeah. the '70s stuff. They love moving pictures. They love signals, and then they dropped off. Yeah, Martin's just one of those. That's all. Yeah. And he also happens to be an author who writes books about hard rock and heavy metal. And Rush is one of those bands he writes about. Yep. And Rush did a lot of stuff after Signals that Martin should include in his books. And why wouldn't he? Yeah. I'm curious to see what he thinks of some of the later gems. I think he's going to turn people around because I think he's going to like Clockwork Angels. And I think he's going to like Snakes and Arrows. And I think he's going to like Vapor Trails. Yeah, I hope so. I hope so too. Because I like all three of those. (laughs) (laughs) You know, we still haven't even talked about Snakes and Arrows. Can you believe we haven't even finished all of the albums yet, Steve? I can't believe it, but we're going to do it soon and I can't wait. When we started, we thought we would do, I don't know, what was it? 40 episodes, 20 albums, one episode on each album. Yeah, we should have been done a long time ago. We're not. We should have, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) That's because we're talking with fascinating people, Jer. That's true. And we've got another fascinating person that we're talking to today on the Rush Fancast, president and CEO of Hudson Music. He's an accomplished drummer in his own right and the creator of the educational drum video market, Rob Wallace. Welcome to the Rush Fancast. How you guys doing? Thanks for having me. We're doing great. Thanks for joining us. We really appreciate it. We like to start out by asking our guests, Rob, what their Rush origin story is. When did you first hear Rush and how did you become a fan? Oh boy, that's a tough one. You know, I'm so intertwined over the last, I guess it's probably close to 35 years with Neil that it's a little hard to separate sort of everything that happened before that period of time and then after that period. But I know, I don't know, boy, it's got to be in the, you know, somewhere in the mid 80s, I started hearing, you know, Rush music like all of us and, and, taking note of who's this guy playing drums there, you know. Um, I didn't start out as the biggest, you know, Rush fan, but 
over time, I just, you know, I came to really respect and admire the band, the music, and Neil, and especially, you know, Neil's drumming and just his whole creative focus. And as we chipped away and kind of wore him down to eventually do a project, you know, I, I really came to appreciate Neil probably more so after we started working together and getting to know him as a person than even up to that point. So why don't you tell us, Rob, how your relationship with, with Neil Peart began? You mentioned you wore him down. How did you do that? <laughs> um, what happened was the first project we did with my uh, first company, DCI Music Video, we were working with Kathy Rich, Buddy Rich's daughter, and we were filming the scholarship concerts that she was doing around the country. We filmed several of them, a, a, a really big one in 1989 with Steve Gadd, Dave Weckl, uh, Louis Belson, Dennis Chambers, Vinnie Cagliuta, Louis Belson, and Greg Bissonette. And it was, you know, some people refer to it as the sort of the biggest and best drum show that's ever happened and been recorded and so forth. And, we, you know, we put that out. And I forget exactly the year she did one in New York at the old Ritz Theater. And Neil was on the bill with Steve Smith and Omar Hakim, uh, Smitty Smith. And so we kind of came along with that, that show and that project. And that's really where we met Neil for the first time was working on that show. One of the real clear images I still have from that show was walking outside and seeing the line go, I don't know, as far as I could see down, I think it was 8th Avenue in Manhattan. And actually the fire department coming in and saying, if we didn't start letting people in, they were going to shut the show down because it was getting dangerous because the street, there were so many people out on the sidewalk and spilling into the streets. Yeah, I guess that shows just how much of a draw Neil was. Absolutely. That's when I really said, wow, Neil has got quite a, a draw because, you know, 90% of the people came to see Neil. I think that was his first foray outside of Rush. You know, it was his first sort of independent thing that he did. So needless to say, you know, there was a huge buzz that night. There was a huge buzz around, you know, the video that we put out. Um, that was pre-DVD even. You know, it gave us a chance to work with Neil, get to know him. You know, I'm sure, I, I don't remember exactly, but I'm sure we had sent him an edit of his performance and the audio mix that we did. And, and you know, he trusted us. And as I came to learn about Neil and, and the amount of hands-on he is, for that particular project, he was fairly um, hands-off. You know, he knew that we were mixing and, and editing all the drummers that were, you know, it was hours of music and, and it was a big project. And he kind of went with the flow, which was really fantastic. You know, that's not to say he may maybe didn't make some comments on the mix or the video edit. He likely did. But as we'll come to a little bit, you know, in a minute, you know, working with Neil on, on all the other projects, I came to see how detail-oriented and hands-on Neil really was and became and really added to um, a level of all of our work from that point forward that, you know, that was amazing. But you worked with him again on a second project, right? The next project after that, Neil, 
had the concept to do a record called Burning for Buddy. And then Neil actually reached out to us, uh, my partner at the time, my business partner at the time, uh, Paul Siegel and I, he said, listen, um, doing this project, we're going to have a lot of drummers. You probably know and work with most of them. So, you know, they'll be comfortable having you guys there, but I only want you guys there. You know, no, you know, cameramen, you know, no outside lighting people. The idea is that you guys are going to be kind of like flies on the wall. You film as, as much as you can with two cameras. But Neil didn't want a lot of kind of chaos and, you know, production getting in the way of the music. So we actually went out and bought lights and bought cameras for this project. And we set up for two weeks in the Hit Factory in New York. And seven days a week, probably 12, at least 12 hours a day, we filmed a who's who, really, of drummers. Steve Gadd, Dave Weckl, Dave Garibaldi, Kenny Aronoff. You know, it was just, you know, on and on and on. I'm, I'm not trying to drop names, but that was the project. And, uh, you know, we did know most of the guys. So, you know, it, for them, it was a little bit of a comfort factor because everybody that came in was nervous. You know, everybody, you know, really rose to the challenge. But they were playing Buddy Rich charts. So not only were they kind of going to you know, they knew they were going to be kind of compared to Buddy Rich. So that's pretty daunting for any drummer to sit in the seat behind the kit and like record a Buddy Rich track that he was known for. But they also wanted to look good in front of their peers because the, 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 the shooting gallery was, you know, a lot of drummers, everybody was hanging out watching the whole thing happen. So they were in the control room. And, you know, you'd never know who was going to be in there, you know, that day. But it was it was the who's who. So the pressure was on for everybody. I think it 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 actually helped everyone because they raised their game. Everybody's performances were just, you know, stunning. And um, Neil recorded, I think it was 22 guys at the end of the day or 24 guys. It, you know, it was, it was crazy in, in a two week period. It was like two to three people a day would come in. You know, they would get their kit set up. They'd run through the, the the chart one or two times, and they'd start taking them. And at some point, you know, they would say, okay, that's that's as good as I can get it. They would break the drums down, bring in the next guy's set. The next person would go on, and it was just amazing. That was the beginning of a long relationship you had with Neil Rob. How did you keep in touch with him after that? You know, we would write to Neil. You know, in those days, and this is, this is pre-cell phone and pre-internet, you know, there was pre-email, but there were faxes. Um, Neil would typically write letters. You know, you'd, we'd write to him and say, hey, Neil, what's happening the next six months? Do you think, you know, you can do an instructional video with us? And, you know, some time would go by and he'd write back and say, no, sorry, you know, I'm tied up with uh, a rush project. You know, we're, we're going into pre-production, you know, the next, you know, nine months um, I'm spoken for. He, and he say, check back with me down the road. And, you know, this, this volley went on for a while until one day we get a letter in the mail. Um, I actually happened to be in England at the time doing something. And, and my business partner called up and said, you're not going to believe it, you know, and he read me Neil's letter. And basically it said, you, you wore me down. Let's plan to do something. And I have a window coming up and that was really the start of the instructional stuff that we did with Neil. Now I have a question about that. 
because Neil, because everyone, you know, all Rush fans know what a perfectionist he was. And I'm just curious why, like why instructional videos for a drummer like him at such a high level, what did he, he wanted to share his abilities with other drummers. He did. He reached, I guess he reached a point in his life and career that he really wanted to start, start, you know, documenting him on the drums. Um, Even though everything related that we did from that point on, there were three, you know, major instructional projects. Everything that we did with him sort of on the instructional level revolved around Rush, but it really focused on him and more than just sort of saying, well, you know, here's what I did in, you know, this song, here's what I did in that song. He would really talk about conceptual, what he was thinking and what he was trying to execute on the drums and why, you know, everything Neil played, every note was thought out. None of it was sort of a random, like, okay, I need a fill. Let me, you know, go to my, you know, toolbox, pull out a a drum fill, throw it in that song and that spot, you know, and, and move on. No, you know, Neil being Neil, everything had a reason and a place. And he thought about everything, not, you know, I mean, lyrics aside, I mean, obviously he was an, an incredibly deep thinker and deep writer to answer your question, you know, Neil really wanted to share his approach to drumming and his approach to playing in Rush, I think, ultimately. And that's why he did it. You know, he obviously didn't need to do it for financial reasons or he wasn't, he wasn't going to get rich on, on instructional videos, but he, he really wanted to share his approach and, and, and his respect for the drums with people. Yeah, I was watching... Um anatomy of a drum solo and certain sections when he's breaking down you know his thought process on the drums he really is like this is the busy part and i'm going to balance that you know i'm going to go over to the you know to the cowbells for two seconds and then i'm going to and it was just amazing to because his his drum solos were compositions you know they weren't your usual kind of bang out a drum solo yeah, you know, Neil's mind, they, they told the story and they took the listener, you know, uh, on kind of a, a trip, you know, and, and there was you know, kind of a beginning, middle and end, you know, and I think he thought about his solos like with punctuation, you know, putting a period after this and then going on to the next section. It was like, you know, flipping a page in a book, you know, then you go to this section and then you know, the drum set would spin and he would jump on the electronics and then, you know, he would finish that segment, put the exclamation point on it, spin the drum kit around and, and then go to kind of building up to the finale of the, um, the solo, you know, on the, the acoustic kit. I mean, it was, it was all very carefully thought out, orchestrated in, 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 in the true sense of the word. And, um, you know, he, he viewed his kit, obviously it was a very large kit, but everything had a purpose and, you know, he, he used it all when he played. It wasn't just there for eye candy. Now, how rare is that Rob for a drummer not to be improvisational? You've worked with so many drummers. How rare was Neil? That's a great question. Neil, his concept of improvisation grew as time went on. He studied with a a drummer who was a very close friend of mine for a long time, a drummer named Freddie Gruber. And Freddie came at 
drumming and teaching from a real jazz background. You know, in the 50s, you know, Freddie would jam with Charlie Parker in Harlem at, at, you know, these like overnight jam sessions. You know, Marlon Brando would be on bongos and, you know, know, Freddie would describe these unbelievable scenes. But Freddie and Neil became best of friends. They, you know, had an incredible relationship. You know, Neil literally took care of Freddie in his final days. Spend, you know, he sometimes, I think, sometimes sleep at Freddie's kind of crazy house. Uh, you know, all the couches had, were covered in clear plastic. And But Neil being Neil and his, you know, it's a whole other side, which maybe we could talk about is, you know, Neil the human being and his, um, the things he would do very under the radar, I would say, for people, you know, starting, you know, really going back. When Neil passed, it really struck me when I would see posts on social media by people that you, you could see were emotional when Neil passed, um, but they would kind of tell their story about, well, you know, I was, you know, really sick myself and and I wrote Neil and, and you know, three months later, I got a, a letter back from Neil, you know, hoping I was you know, recovering and, and, you know, these real personal recollections that people had, you know, that Neil reached out, you know, on a personal level, you know, he, he would visit people in the hospital that were sick and it was all under the radar. You know, he was very close with a drummer named Ian Wallace, who was a, a fantastic drummer, played in King Crimson and played with Don Henley and Bob Dylan, you know, had an amazing career. I, I was also very close with Ian but Neil would go, you know, to the hospital at, at, towards the end. Um, Ian had cancer. Neil would just show up and, and sit with Ian and hold his hand, and they would talk and tell stories, you know, and, and that's what Neil did under the radar. And it wasn't just famous people that, that he did that for, you know. In one of the documentaries, Neil always talked about how fans perceived him and how he didn't want to trample on their perception of him, but he also didn't want to live whatever fantasy they projected on him. But he kind of seemed to be the person that everyone assumed he was, or kind, generous, smart, and everything. He was. You know, Neil was immensely private. I think looking back, uh, especially when he passed, and, you know, I, I've been asked to participate in some tributes and, and some things like that. He was very, very private, and he took a long time till you kind of, worked your way into the circle of friends that he kept close and small. I think the two projects that we did before the instructional, the relationship changed drastically. Once we did the instructional, we spent, you know, three or four days, you know, working together in, for the first instructional project called the work in progress that was in Woodstock, New York. And, you know, at that point we kind of got to Neil's inner circle and you know, Neil valued his privacy. He was a great guy to be around. Um, he was entertaining and warm and funny and friendly. And, and the, he would joke with the crew guys. You know, we would have, you know, 10 people, 15 people in the studio with us between cameramen, lighting people, audio people. And it wasn't like Neil, you know, sat in a corner and was shy. He was just very protective of his privacy. And, you know, we learned early on that you never, you know, it, it was, I never felt comfortable asking him to, 
you know, oh, can you do this or can, can you sign, can I send you, somebody wants an autograph or however, when we would release a product and I'd see Neil, you know, and he'd say, you know, he would sign, you know, 50 DVD covers or he would sign, you know, at one point we did these posters for taking center stage and we printed these beautiful posters that were for promotion. And I don't know how many he signed, maybe a hundred. I'd sent somebody up to Canada um, with the posters in a van and Neil was in a hotel, you know, we met him in a hotel room and he signed him. They had a, you know, they were spread out all over the floor. Um, so they were dry. And then we brought him back to New York. You know, he would rarely say no to anything that I asked, which was, you know, kind of an incredible thing. But he also know if I was asking, it was important to me or important to the project. Because after all those years, he, he knew I never kind of asked for anything gratuitous, you know. The thing that really strikes me is, you know, with the success that Rush had, Neil could have lived the rock, you know, a rock star, very sheltered life, you know, traveling around in limousines and planes and everything. But no, Neil got from show to show in his bus and because he wanted his motorcycle close by at all times. And as the Rush shows uh, and tours kind of progressed, I remember him saying, you know, I'm not crazy about, you know, going on the road and, you know, leaving my daughter, you know, for, for four or five months, but at least I'm going to do it where I can get from one show to the next by motorcycle. And, you know, they would have these intricate plans with his, his riding partner and kind of security person, Michael, they would ride from show to show. And Neil would always say, come back in between uh, sets because as soon as the show's over, you know, I'm gone. And he literally meant that. The last song would ring out, you know, they would do a bow. Neil was off the back of the stage. There'd be a robe, somebody holding a robe. He would get the robe put around his shoulders and he'd be on the bus. I'm talking like 90 seconds after the last, you know, cymbal crash. And I, I was backstage a few times and I would actually see the bus pull out and it would beat all the traffic out of the parking lot of the, of the venue. You know, he was the first, like the first one. You know, it, it was so funny, but, you know, he would always, we would always say our goodbyes like in, 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 during the intermission because you'd never get to see him, you know, once or twice, maybe I got a wave <laughs> backstage, you know, at the end of the show, that was it. The amazing thing about Neil is he, he felt like he was just a regular guy, just like you and me. He didn't feel like he was better than us. Is that true? Absolutely. You know, he was a blue collar, you know, guy. And that, you know, that sort of segues into one of the points I wanted to make was Neil's hands-on um, approach to everything. He wanted to be in the trenches. We used to always say that our working relationship was like one and one equals three. You know, uh, my po business partner, Paul, he and I would kind of construct a project and from where it started to where it ended up, it always grew like a thousand fold. And, and it ended up in a place that we could have never imagined when we started. And it was always a, this, you know, incredible journey, you know, working with him. And, you know, there were, you know, it was very touching for me. There were a few interviews where I would read, you know, Neil would refer to us in, in a similar vein, I would, I would never compare it to Getty and Alex, but he, he would kind of feel that we were, had a partnership, you know, for a number of years because we, you know, we were 
exposing part of Neil to the world that no one ever got to see. So it was um, flattering that, that he, he felt the way he did. And, and um, I guess that's why, you know, our, our working relationship, you know, went on for, you know, over 30 years, maybe 35 years. So what did you learn, Rob, from Neil that helped you with your future collaborations with other drummers? You've worked with dozens of drummers. How did Neil help you <laughs> in your career? You know, part of what I got from Neil was, was just the work ethic, you know, that every detail needed to be tended to to make a, a great product at the end. You know, and that went down to, you know, Neil's selection of the paper that was used for the booklets that, that went in with the DVDs. I mean, he saw paper samples, he, the, the box for the, the DVDs. You know, we would bring in the Rush artist, uh, Hugh Sign, to d- do a lot of the design work. And, you know, Neil, from the first project, he, you know, he was always right with this stuff. To answer your question, you know, one of the big things really was work ethic. Leave no stone unturned. Go with your gut. It was, it was something that, that, you know, Neil would, it would just, you know, we, we would all together kind of have this input into, into things. And the projects were very time consuming when they were happening. Working with all the drummers, I mean, you know, I've, I've been fortunate enough to produce. I've, I've never counted, but, you know, it could be four or 500 products between books, DVDs, um, this app I have called Drum Guru, you know, digital clips. I mean, you know, it's, it's been pretty extensive. Everyone is different. And I always treat each one, in, you know, differently and kind of in a unique way and try to really, you know, immerse myself completely into the project that we're working on at the time. And, and as did Neil, you know, and that's why we would schedule these things in advance when he knew he had a window so that he could give it the attention that he wanted to without being pulled, you know, in too many directions at, at the same time. Now that when you were working with him and he was describing his philosophy or his approach to the drums, what was it about that philosophy and approach to the drums that made him, that made him Neil Peart? You know what I mean? Because I find him to be a, a distinctive sound and obviously the proficiency and everything. But what is it about Neil that makes him Neil behind the kit? What makes Neil Neil is, I think, his intelligence, his work ethic. If he heard something and he couldn't execute it, he would practice it and, and t- until he could execute it. Everybody that I've been fortunate enough to work with, when you get to know them as people, they play like who they are, if that makes sense. And there's a certain spirit and heart that I think all great musicians have. And, and that's why they're great, because they can tap into something emotionally inside of them that they have learned how to convey out to the public when they're performing or recording. And, you know, it's a little bit heady that, you know, answer, but that's the best answer, you know, I I could really give it. Now, what about the settings, Rob, of some of the projects you guys worked on? You mentioned you filmed at Woodstock for a work in progress. And I know we talked to Joe Bergamini about filming in Death Valley. What about the settings? How important was that to Neil and how important was that to the overall project? Great question. The settings were really important to Neil because he was such a person that loved to explore. If we come up with kind of a 
a plan that would fit his his schedule. So, for instance, you know, the reason we did the first one in Woodstock was he was planning afterwards to drive his car from Woodstock up to Canada. But, you know, he would sometimes exit a project with on motorcycles. Sometimes he would, you know, exit on car. As Joe told you, you know, the, the Death Valley shoot was just unbelievable. Um, you know, I think we spent, you know, it was maybe four days at these incredible locations. And for Neil, it was just an enticement to get him to, you know, look forward to doing something because it was a different experience. You know, he, he just wanted to experience the outdoors, you know, obviously with all the books he wrote about bicycling and motorcycling across the country or across Africa. And, and he loved going to you know, these national parks in the U.S. And there's no question that he has seen more of the U.S. than any American that, <laughs> that I know, because he always would take back roads when he would go from show to show from, for the Rush Tour. It was always back roads. It was never on an interstate. You know, he wasn't riding a motorcycle down, you know, the New York State Thruway or, you know, it was down these little country roads. Sometimes he would hit, you know, un- unexpected, you know, turbulence, like, you know, an, un- an unpaved road and he'd be on gravel. And, you know, he wrote about that in his books. So, yeah, th- to answer in a long winded way, um, uh, you know, location was really important, you know. Actually, for the second project that we did with Neil, after the work in progress and before going out to Death Valley, we found a studio that a friend was managing called Alaire, and it was also in upstate New York. It was outside of Woodstock, about you know twenty minutes, thirty minutes outside of Woodstock. It was literally on the top of a mountain. It was a private road that you'd go up, and a very very wealthy family owned this, what used to be a, a country estate for this family. And the person that then bought it converted one of the main areas in the estate to a recording studio. And it had literally like a 50 or 60 foot peak, you know, ceiling. It was be beyond imagination, but they, they owned the whole top of the mountain and there were cabins and, you know, we, we were all housed up there. You know, we would have to bring in catering, you know, every day for meals because, you know, we were pretty isolated and didn't want to have to spend the time like hunting for, you know, for meals while we were working. And there was, a, you know, full kitchens there and, and, you know, they, they were set up for the kind of work we were doing and, you know, Neil loved it. It was completely isolated, had a view that was, you know, to die for. There was this peak, you could climb up this ladder and, and be, you know, up at the, on the top of one of the main buildings and just, I don't know how many miles you could see, but, you know, it was nothing but clouds and sky and, you know, really in nature. Neil loved it to the extent that when we finished, he actually brought Rush there to do, why, which record would that have been? But Rush did, did you know, recorded an album at the same studio once we were we were finished because Neil just loved the experience of being there. But I remember the first morning when we were working in Woodstock for the first project, the work in progress, I think we we did a couple of different shoots up there, but this particular one was in, in winter. There was some snow on the ground and we were kind of wondering like, you know, when are we going to see Neil? And all of a sudden we looked over the ridge and there comes Neil in snowshoes, you know, kind of <laughs> trudging through the big open field, you know, in, in his snowshoes. And... um 
I think that was one of the shoots that he was going, I think, also back up to Canada, but he went by motorcycle. I have a, a photo of him, like, you know, leaving in this, you know, gear. He was covered from head to toe with this, you know, windproof and waterproof suit because it was, it was real cold out. And he was, I don't know how many hours he was driving, you know, by motorcycle 10, like some, you know, something, you know, inhumane. Uh, that he was putting himself through, but you know, it was a challenge. He he loved challenges like that, and uh, you know that that's really you know who Neil was. Now you worked Rob with some of the greatest drummers in the world. What were their feelings about Neil? What did Neil Peart mean to them? The drum community is, I call it, you know, whenever drummers are together, I call it the big hug fest. You know, there's an organization called the Percussive Arts Society, which in a few weeks is going to be honoring Neil for their Hall of Fame. And I was fortunate enough to be invited to be on a panel actually with Joe, Mike Portnoy, and, you know, one of Neil's uh, closest friends. Uh, we're, gonna, we're doing this panel. Uh, it's going to be a tribute to Neil. And we're actually, actually, you guys will be the first to hear it. You know, um, Hudson Music and, and myself, I'm going to be sponsoring a scholarship in Neil's name that's going to kick off actually in March through this organization, the Percussive Arts Society. It's going to be uh, the Neil Per Drum Set Scholarship. And um, we'll be, you know, kind of uh, unveiling details of that, but it's going to be for private study on drum set that people will apply. It's all uh, being run through uh, the Percussive Arts Society, PAS, but we're going to announce it that weekend of the uh, their online convention. They have this, you know, it's a, a very long-standing organization and they always had a very large convention in Indianapolis of the last you know dozen years or so and um, this year it's going to be online so everybody's been sending in these tributes and then we're going to be doing a uh, a zoom that we'll we'll film it'll be um, like I said with with Joe and Mike Portnoy and Chris Stanky who was one of Neil's absolute you know closest compadres Chris met Neil through working for Sabian, but they became, you know, fast friends. Chris was giving Neil's daughter, Olivia, drum lessons, and he was in the absolute inner circle uh, in Neil's world, you know, through the last few years. So um, coming back to your question, though, you know, people, drummers, you know, they all respected Neil. They, they recognized his stature. In, you know, in music. And like I said, in the, you know, in the beginning, you know, that line went six blocks down, you know, the street in, in Manhattan, they were, you know, drummers knew it, you know, he may have not played the style that, that they were accustomed to or, or, or sort of in their wheelhouse. Um, but, you know, drummers don't talk badly about other drummers, you know, and that's why I, I was referring to the, the hug fest. I think drumming and drummers are the, Big, you know, one of the biggest musical fraternities there are. I don't think, you know, guitar players are as open and sharing or sax players or trumpet players or violin players. Drums and drummers have this amazing camaraderie and friendship that you could meet somebody for the first time and, and shake hands or give a hug. And within minutes, it's like you're, you know, been a long time buds. Circling back to your question, I mean, you know, guys had a lot of respect for Neil and real respect, I should say, when, when they would hear that at his age, you know, at, at 50, he was studying with Freddie Gruber or, you know, at 60 with Peter Erskine, you know, they were like, wow, you know, that's 
pretty damn impressive that somebody at his stature and his you know level of success is still looking to improve. I think that maybe more than anything rang out with everybody that I ever talked to about Neil. And it was like, is he, does he really, is he really doing that? And, you know, there are guys that are committed to the instrument like that. You know, I just yesterday morning, you know, was um, catching up with Steve Smith and he's been telling me what he's been practicing. You know, he's one of those guys that just comes home from a tour and the next day he's practicing, you know, it's, it's amazing and it's inspiring to see that. And there are guys like that. And, you know, Neil would probably go for periods of time when he wouldn't pick up sticks, but then he would, you know, really delve into it. And he really wanted to explore coming back to something we talked about earlier, kind of the improvisation, you know, he didn't want to stay so structured that every night he played the same fill in the same place. And, I think that came to him as he got older and got more exposed to different music and, and, you know, studying with Freddie and hanging out with Freddie and studying with Peter. I think that all, you know, clicked with Neil. Now, in your tribute to Neil on the Hudson Music website, Rob, you stated that Neil described your partnership as second only to Getty and Alex. How does it make you feel to hear that? I touched on it earlier. It makes, you know, it's, it's gives me the goosebumps just to hear you say that, you know, um, you know, I, I love Neil. I miss him terribly. And, you know, to have here, you know, him give, give respect to me that, that way is, you know, what, what can you say? I mean, what could be a better tribute? You know, it, it beats for me, it beats like any of the financial rewards and it makes all of the incredible efforts that we all put into to working together and working on his projects and the years of begging him to get started with us, you know, it makes it all worthwhile. You know, for me at the end of the day, it's all about the relationships and that's the number one thing for me. Um, that, that's always what drove me. You know, we all got to make a living and, and take care of our families and, and, and all of that. But, you know, to be able to do that and get, you know, a response out of somebody like Neil, who is so immensely private. Yeah. You know, it's it's you know, I get I could get myself good and choked up now. <laughs> <laughs> well, Rob, thanks so much for joining us today and sharing your, your stories about Neil Peart. It really was fantastic. Steve, I really appreciate you reaching out. Jerry, appreciate, you know, what you guys do and uh, giving me the opportunity to express myself and share some thoughts about our dear departed friend. Rob Wallace, president and CEO of Hudson Music. You can find all these Neil DVDs, the great DVDs that you guys produced at HudsonMusic.com. Thanks, Rob. Thanks, guys. All right, we'll talk to you soon. So, Jerry, another fantastic conversation. Absolutely. I love having guests on. You know, we didn't mention prior to the interview that Rob Wallace is Joe Bergamini's boss at Hudson Music. That's right. So we talked to Joe a few weeks ago, and he suggested that we talk to Rob. And what a great suggestion. Yeah, it was. Absolutely. Just to hear, um, just to hear the, I don't know, the, the more private side of a private person. Yeah, I mean, he was really, really close friends with Neil for, for over 30 years. Yeah. I mean, he, he lost a great friend. Yep. It's tough, really tough. And also just the inner workings of Neil as a drummer, just to hear about that was also fascinating. Yeah, definitely. Especially if you're working like Rob was on instructional videos, mm -hmm. you really got to see the techniques in a, in a 
different light than just watching him play like on stage. Right. And Rob worked with so many great drummers. Oh, I, so many. I know. If you, ch- if you check out their website, the stuff that they have there, just like it's a who's who of drummers. It's crazy. Yeah. Yeah. So go to HudsonMusic.com. All the Neil Peart videos are there, but also pretty much any other amazing drummer you want to learn from, you can find it on HudsonMusic.com, which is, which is great. Yeah, that's right. So anyway, Jer, I think we should wrap this up. This went long enough. It did. You can find us on Twitter at RushFanCast, Instagram, we are TheRushCast, email Jerry, TheRushCast at gmail.com. Let him know what you thought about our interview with Rob Wallace. The bass intro and outro, as always, done by our good pal Lex. And Jer, I hope you have a quote for me. I do. And this time I'm going to quote from Time Stand Still. Oh, nice. I think it's an appropriate song for the conversation we just had. Mm-hmm. Summer's going fast, night's growing colder, children growing up, old friends growing older, experience slips away. You were right. Perfect. All right. Thanks. Thanks, Jer. All right. Bye. Take it easy. Thank you.